You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Here's Nate. Well, belief in the message of the gospel places a person into Christ. That is our identity. And in actuality, I think the word or phrase in Christ is probably a better one than even the phrase Christian. Uh, To be in Christ is a much more biblical concept of what it means to be a believer, what happens to us as a result of the gospel. Born again, placed into Christ, our identity wrapped up in him, called, elected, uh, filled with the Spirit, redeemed. Uh, We are a part of the family of God. And Paul has shared with us in the second half of the book of Ephesians uh, part of the results of this great transformation and salvation and uh, that, that is ours in Christ, part of the result of the great riches that are ours spiritually because of Jesus. He tells us of this new humanity uh, that is ours, tells us how to express and walk with the Lord uh, the way that husbands and wives and children and parents and even slaves and masters are to uh, treat one another. Uh, but here he closes out his epistle to the Ephesians, with the concept of war and battle. You are in Christ, therefore, you now have a target upon uh, your back. And there is Paul writing this epistle tied to a Roman soldier imprisoned himself. And he uh, thinks of them and he says, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he uses the word finally to indicate the close of his epistle. And like I said, in light of everything that he's taught us in Ephesians up to this point, our great wealth in Christ, our walk uh, with the Lord, and now this war that is ours as a result of uh, being in Christ. Some have outlined the book of Ephesians in this way. We sit in our great position in Christ. We walk from our great position in Christ. And now here, Paul tells us to stand against the attacks of the wicked one, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, to sit, walk, and finally stand. His exhortation in verse 10 is clear enough. Be strong in the Lord. Before he appropriates the armor of God and shows us how to fight and stand, he tells us to be strong. There's to be a baseline of strength uh, that is ours, and not to just be strong, but in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There is a balance, of course, between God's ability and our effort. You know, there are incorrect attitudes out there. The idea that I do everything and God does nothing is an incorrect attitude. The attitude that I do nothing and God does everything is also an incorrect attitude. Uh, 
the idea that I do all that I can and then God helps with what I just can't do myself is also an incorrect attitude. The correct attitude is, by faith, I rely on his might more and more and then I get to work. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. He said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You know, the idea that as you throw your energy into it, the energy of the Holy Spirit, the energy of God is going to meet you as you take those steps. You know, the idea of Peter as he climbed out of the boat and came to Christ. He exercised his will, his mind, his energy, his intellect, but obviously the power of God met him as he set his eyes upon Christ, met him to be able to walk for a moment upon the water. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. I like the phrase, the whole armor. He's not suggesting just a piece or two of it, but all of it complements uh, every other piece. Every piece must be warm. There's no room for partial armor. He says, do this so that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, Paul does not allude to his existence or his origin. He just uh, assumes says, listen, you know the devil is around. It ought to be obvious to you. His origin is unimportant. It's his scheming and his presence uh, that are so obvious. And he refers here, he says, listen, put on this armor so that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, we so often read the New Testament with the self in mind, forgetting that Paul is writing the so many of his New Testament epistles to a church at large, but especially you could make that case of the book of Ephesians. He is speaking to a new humanity, this group of people who are now identified with the phrase in Christ. They've been placed in Christ. This is who uh, they are. So when we read in verse 11 that there are schemes of the devil one of our first reactions is to think about how the devil wants to trip us up, slip us up, uh, ruin our lives, that he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But it's important to understand that the schemes of the devil are primarily uh, aiming towards the crippling of the church. In other words, his schemes are designed to destroy the church, which it will be impossible according to Jesus. He said, I tell you, you're Peter, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates, which some people translate schemes of the of hell, shall not prevail against it. So with all of his schemes, with all of his plotting, the devil will not be successful in bringing down the church. But the devil is scheming and he is planning against individual lives to be certain. But firstly and primarily, he is scheming and planning against the mission of the church, the mission of the gospel. And Paul wanted them to stand against these schemes. He taught them, he had prayed for them, 
But now they need to pick up the armor and stand. He says, verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Quite a statement from Paul. And so here he says, listen, uh, this is what's going on. You are involved in a great war and a great battle. He says, we do not wrestle against. In other words, he's saying, listen, we are wrestling against something, and I so appreciate that Paul includes us into his war. It was very obvious that Paul was wrestling with principalities and powers of darkness. But to say to the Ephesians, hey, listen, guys, I know that you are in this fight just like I, Paul the Apostle, am in this fight. What a humbling statement. Like a tag team wrestler, Paul is tagging the hand of his companions there in the church in Ephesus and also us. And he says, listen, first of all, you need to know we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our fight as the church is not against the seen or the physical realm. And many people, unfortunately, put their full effort into this direction. We've got to fight against what we can see. Uh, but as the Ephesians had had to learn, when Demetrius came into town and began to cause an uprising against the local church and against the local church leaders, Demetrius was not the problem. The devil was the problem. You know, your boss, your spouse, your child, your addiction is not the real problem. The devil is the real problem. We often look to flesh and blood answers to spiritual problems. We're not going to fix this planet through education, legislation, improved environment. We are going to see this planet change when Christ returns. We are going to see people's lives changed when the gospel enters into their hearts. When you turn to battling against flesh and blood, you end up pessimistic and bitter. Realize, he says, verse 12, that your battle is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. Now, I'm not prone to put each one of these four uh, categories into a specific little slot. Uh, and uh, I know that some of us with our modern you know, intelligentsia would like to reinterpret these things to be political and earthly, but the context is not flesh and blood. These are not physical rulers and authorities and powers and forces. They are spiritual, they are invisible, they are unseen. And like I said, we should be able to look around at the world we live in and understand that much of what we see is a direct result of the fallenness of mankind, but much of what we see additionally is a direct result of these unseen rulers and authorities, cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil fighting underneath the devil's leadership, destroying human lives. This should be abundantly clear and obvious to us. Now in verse 13, he tells them, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand 
firm. So he repeats this exhortation. Get that whole armor of God upon you. Don't leave a piece of it uh, off to the side. Take up all of it for a very specific reason. That you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So we want to withstand. We want to stand firm. And so Paul tells us take up the full armor. These are battle words from Paul. You know, God's goal for us is that of stability. He's not even really here saying, I want you to go out there and fight, 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 but I want you to just be able to withstand and stand in the midst of trial and attack. When the attack comes, I don't want you to be afraid or fearful. I don't want you to waver. I want you to stand. So he says, verse 14, he begins to talk about these different weapons that he's alluded to twice now. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so Paul lists uh, these uh, pieces of weaponry that God has given to us. Let's take weapon number one or a piece of our armor. He calls it the belt of truth. Now, the belt for them would obviously hold their garments together, not just their pants up, but their garments together in that culture. And it would enable them to keep their sword on. It held their garments together and their sword on. In other words, without this going on in their lives, the other elements of the armor were pointless. And so obviously there's a basic interpretation of this, the belt of truth. Well, what is the truth? Well, you have the truth of God's word. We are armored with the belt of truth. But later we're going to see the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There's actually a, another way of looking at the belt of truth. It's a word that speaks of integrity and faithfulness. In other words, this speaks of a true, not a duplicitous, not a false life. A true life. And a true life, if you really think of it, does exactly what a belt will do. You know, without a belt on, you have no freedom of movement. You're always holding things together and keeping things on. You're not able to move as swiftly as you could when your belt is firmly in place. And a true non-hypocritical life gives freedom of movement regarding ourselves, regarding others, before God. But Satan is able to use an untruthful life for his purposes. Jesus continued to reiterate this point in Matthew chapter 6 when he told us concerning our generosity, concerning our prayer life, and concerning our financial giving. He said, what you do in secret will be rewarded openly by your Father. Are you in secret, a true believer. Gird yourself with the belt of truth. Have an inward consistency inside of your life. When you don't, you experience what David experienced during 
a long period of silence concerning his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. It says in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, When I kept silent regarding that issue, David says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so Satan, the great liar, hates a life of truth, but a true life, a life of integrity, a life of faithfulness, uh, is a, an effective life. And unfortunately, there are some who think that the church will not advance until it, quote unquote, loosens up. And if it comes to loosening up from legalism, I'm all for it. But let us be a people full of integrity, full of faithfulness before God, the belt of truth. Secondly, he refers to the breastplate of uh, righteousness. Now, I know that some will talk about how the breastplate obviously only covers the front of a person, so therefore your position has to be that of advancing. There is some evidence, however, that suggests that the breastplate also protected the backside like the front and made sure that those major organs were uh, safe. Uh, however, the question of what is the breastplate of righteousness for us? Now, obviously, there is such a thing as positional righteousness before the Lord, our justification in Christ. And this is a wonderful weapon for us to use in uh, spiritual battle. Uh, however, I think there's another way of seeing this particular weapon. The breastplate of righteousness could also be defined as right actions towards those around me. In other words, not positional righteousness, but a practical rightness of life is the way that that word could be translated and seen. One great weapon of a believer is godliness, right actions towards the Lord and right actions towards man, righteousness. To be, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 7, truthful in speech and the power of God and uh, the, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. There's power in a right kind of of life, And I tend to think that these first two uh, pieces of the armor have to do with a consistent kind of life. Thirdly, he says in verse 15 that we're to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, in those days, their shoes that they would take to battle were studded sandals that tied to the leg uh, like a boot. And... Uh, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, a lot of their mil military successes uh, could be attributed to, in part, their armies being outfitted with proper shoes, enabling them to cover ground at great speeds. And so one way to see the, this is to see the ready and prepared person in the sharing of the gospel. And of course, in Romans chapter 10, Paul quoting from Isaiah 52, said, How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so this is uh, perhaps 
Paul referring to the wonderful weapon of the readiness of sharing the gospel or the sure-footedness that comes from the gospel. Shoes of the gospel of peace. You know, the gospel uh, brings peace to a human heart. And in every situation and in every attack that we experience as we're, you know, under that spiritual attack to give the message of the gospel to, to ourselves, to have that underneath our feet, it makes us the psalmist says our feet like the feet of a deer we're prepared for those attacks as the gospel is our sure footing preaching the gospel to yourself in all circumstances he says in verse 16 that we're also to take up the shield of faith now the shield was not the small round defensive kind of weapon but the large full-bodied wooden shield uh, likely it would be covered with linen and then with leather uh, designed to extinguish flaming darts. And en enabled troops with these shields would interlock them together against the attacks of the fiery darts. And we experience, of course, the fiery darts, Paul tells us, of the wicked one. Now, these are the attacks of Satan. And he gives fiery darts in a wide and varied kind of way. It could be depression, insignificant things blown out of proportion, opposition, panic, a feeling of helplessness. But when these fiery darts come, faith enables us to push through. This is strong belief in God. It just gets us through the attacks of Satan. I can't tell you how many times God has used the life of many of the Old Testament saints to minister to my heart in seasons that I am overwhelmed and feeling ill-equipped for the fight and the battle. Characters like Joshua, whom God gave these uh, wild plans to and asked to do amazing things, and yet came through for them and fought for them, have often brought me such great comfort and have increased my faith in God and have enabled me to survive the fiery darts of the wicked one, a trust in the Lord. He says also, verse 17, that we are to put on the helmet of salvation. Now, a helmet obviously would protect uh, the head, and this is of incredible importance in battle and incredible importance in the Christian life. If the head is gotten to, the, the, the place that we would think of our mind being seated, then the fight, the fight is effectively over with. Uh, Paul speaks of this in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8 as the helmet of the hope of salvation, the strong confidence and belief setting my mind upon my salvation. It does a great thing to, to uh, quenching and defeating the attack of the enemy against the realm of my mind. To think of my justification that I am saved in Christ Jesus. And he also speaks of the sword of the Spirit, taking it up, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. This is the only uh, offensive weapon that Paul lists. 
The big weapon that we have is the weapon of God's Word. To read it, to study it, to consume it, to use it in pushing back. And really, this isn't, Paul isn't speaking of an offensive battle here. He's thinking, like I said, of being able to stand and withstand the attacks of the enemy. The Word of God enables you to endure. Now, overarching this entire battle is prayer. He says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, he transitions now that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You know, any great move of God and any ability to stand in the face of the attacks of the enemy are going to begin with and be enabled by uh, prayer. Nehemiah, before he rebuilt Jerusalem, prayed. The church in the book of Acts, before they exploded onto the scene, prayed. The exodus occurred after the people of God prayed and cried out to the Lord. God works in response to prayer and uses people who pray. And so Paul tells us that under duress and in attack, we should be praying at all times in the spirit. So nonstop prayer all times. Now, this doesn't mean that we're always saying prayers out loud, but we're in continual and open communication with God. And beyond that, ready at all times for opportunities to pray. Just saying, hey, let's pray about that. Let's pray for this sickness. Can I pray for you? And I've found that many people, no matter uh, their background, will often let a believer pray for them and intercede for them. And so there are appointed times for prayer, but there are also opportune times for us to cry out to the Lord. We have many opportunities to pray, nonstop prayer, but also he says praying at all times in the spirit. These, this is spirit-led prayer for the Christian. This is the Bible formula for prayer. It is to the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. And I think this is a major reason why many Christians struggle to consistently have a prayer life. Uh, they often are not led by the Spirit in their prayer, but led by their own mind or by their own heart. We need to ask the Lord to even enable our prayer life. He says in verse 18 that you're to pray with all prayer and supplication. So all kinds of prayer. And there is a lot of different types of prayer. Adoration, confession, forgiveness, requests, submission, intercession, uh, in groups, individually, silently, shouting, walking, kneeling, eloquently, groaning, fervent, constantly. There are a lot of different types of prayer. We're to pray with all prayer and supplication, alertly, with perseverance, for all the saints, he says in verse 18. And then in verse 19 and 20, he says, And as you're praying for the church, pray for me 
as a messenger of the gospel. And I love what he asks them to pray. He says that God would give me the words to speak. That I have to speak words. I, I don't want comfort. He could have asked for freedom from prison. I don't want release or influence, but I want words. I want words. Now, in closing out the letter, Paul said, so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So he's closing it up, says, listen, Tychicus, who is a New Testament player, he delivered the book of Colossians and Philemon. Uh, he went to Ephesus for Paul. He went to Crete to see Titus, one of Paul's friends and companions. He says here, I'm sending Tychicus that he'll tell you everything, verse 22, and I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace, verse 23, be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What a beautiful way to end the book. He Always gives grace at the end of his epistles. And here he says, Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.